Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Cameron and I will be talking about how the sacrament of baptism in the Reformed faith works as a means of grace and how that differs from both the stereotypical Roman Catholic view and the stereotypical evangelical or Baptist view. We'll also talk about the other sacrament instituted by Christ, the Lord's Supper, and how to think about Christ's real spiritual presence at the table. Here in Sioux Falls, where Grace is located, churches aren't exactly few and far between. Unlike some parts of the country where religious observance is in decline, here we see many different faiths robustly represented. The challenge in a highly church place like this is that a lot of people grow up associating Christianity with just being a good person. This isn't the gospel, of course, It's just another particularly pernicious form of moralism. What it means for us is that when people discover grace, there's not only some learning to do, but also some unlearning as well. In this episode, we'll be talking about one of the key areas where this is happening, the whole question of the sacraments, in particular, baptism. For people here with a religious background, their assumptions about baptism tend to have been shaped by one of two traditions. First, there's mainline Lutheran and Roman Catholic views of baptism. Then there's the popular evangelical approach, which is essentially Baptist. Those are the only two options in most people's minds, and when they see us baptizing infants at grace, they assume we must belong to the first camp. But as we're going to see, there's actually a third way. Well, we recently had a baptism, and it was uh, an infant baptism. It got me thinking about just the question of infant baptism, which, if, you know, in general, baptism is kind of a controversial topic. I wanted to ask you about the Reformed position on, on infant baptism in particular. What makes it unique? And if we could maybe contrast that view with other views of baptism, especially infant baptism. I should say up front, I grew up a Baptist and was a Baptist for the first 33 years of my life. And so the paradigm that I grew up with, the way that baptism worked, was the Baptist view. And that is really, it's the evangelical view as a whole. So whether you know a person has gone to a Baptist church or a Bible church or any kind of uh, non-denominational sort of church, the way that most people in the evangelical world think about baptism is more or less the Baptist way. So you'll hear uh, the term often used as believer's baptism. And the idea is that only people who have credibly profess their faith in Jesus Christ and been received into the church should receive the sign of baptism and that any other approach is totally wrong. And so like a lot of people who came to the Reformed faith, 
I came in stages and this was the last stage, you know, for a while I identified as kind of a reformed Baptist and, and baptism was the sticking point. And there's a reason for that, I think, because there's some questions about baptism we rarely ask. And there were some assumptions that we rarely examine. And in order to have the most informed view of baptism, we, we have to examine those assumptions and ask those questions. Let's hit the pause button for a second and unpack that last statement. When it comes to baptism, there are questions we don't ask and assumptions we need to examine. The most important unasked question is really the simplest. What is baptism? What is it for? Instead of rushing to argue about how baptism should be administered and who should rightfully be baptized and when, wouldn't it make more sense to start by nailing down what baptism actually is and what it's for? The answers to the other questions might be easier if we take time to understand baptism itself first. At Grace, we follow the Westminster Confession's definition of baptism as a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, a New Testament sign that corresponds to the Old Testament sign of circumcision. To understand baptism rightly, then, we don't argue over infant baptism versus believer's baptism. Rather, we focus on practicing covenant baptism, which is different from both the Roman Catholic and Lutheran views on the one hand, and the Baptist view on the other. Most people assume that whatever view they grew up with must be the right one. To be persuaded otherwise, they expect to be shown a Bible verse that clearly says, this side is wrong and that side is right. But it's not just what the Bible states explicitly that comes from God. It's also everything that follows naturally from what it teaches. The Westminster Confession calls these teachings things that follow by good and necessary consequence. So to understand our approach to baptism, not only does it help to see the sacrament in a covenant context, but it's also necessary to think about the various ways that Scripture communicates doctrine both explicitly and implicitly. So, historically, the way baptism was done up to, let's say, the Reformation, right? So, baptism in the Roman Catholic Church, um, there would have been a sense of something called uh, baptismal regeneration associated with it. So, so what baptism does would be associated with cleansing the infant of original sin. And let's, this is way oversimplified, but, but so, so basically putting them on a level, level playing field. So uh, they just have to worry about their own problems from here on out, you know, something like that. Um, uh, we're going to be painting with a broad brush here. So just take it that way. So, so that's kind of what we associate with infant baptism, right? People who baptize babies think that, that by doing that, they're saving them, or at least they are like saving them until they're old enough to mess that up, something like that. And as a Baptist, I would have abhorred any suggestion that, that uh, 
this, this empty washing ritual, which was pure symbolism, accomplished some, even, even if it was a temporary work of salvation, that sort of thing. But the question that we never really asked is what is baptism and what is it for? And when I started thinking about this question, that's, that's when things began to unravel a little bit. So as a Baptist, when we talked about baptism and why you should be baptized, that was actually a harder question to answer than you would think it would be. Uh, and I knew people who had uh, come to Christ, professed their faith, but were reluctant to be baptized. Uh, because they saw it as a sort of ritual or, you know, whatever it is, um, unnecessary for their salvation, just a symbol. And in fact, the, the term that was often used is baptism is a first act of obedience. So the idea basically is just once you become a believer, there are a lot of, you know, rules that you're meant to obey. And the very first one is Christ's command to go out and get baptized. And so to show that you mean to be obedient, you mean to live the Christian life. If you can't even obey the first rule, how are you ever going to progress in sanctification? So you need to be baptized, right? But the baptism itself is purely symbolic. It symbolizes something that's already happened in the heart. And that thing needs to have happened before the symbolism comes into play. Now, to be sure, though, there is some historical precedent for that, right? In that, I believe in the early church, there was a long period of catechesis for believers before they could even get baptized, right? So, so it was, it was kind of the the not necessarily the first act of obedience, but it was a symbol of their of their faith, which they had been cultivating. Yes, and and that's not only the case in the ancient church, but but in some parts of the church today. If you were to convert to Eastern Orthodoxy, for example, you couldn't just walk the aisle at the end of a service and be received. Right? There would be a long period of uh, training that was involved, and and at the end of that, you might be received, and it could last for quite some time. And that does imitate um, some of the practices that developed in the early church. The problem, of course, is knowing which practices that developed were the good ones. You know, we have this assumption that we often make that everything was monolithic and everybody did the same thing. But just as in the New Testament, we see some divergence and need for correction in the ancient church. You saw those things happening as well. So, uh, there are a variety of ways in which this has been done. You know, as there are today, it was also that way in the past. So with those two kind of views in mind, so on the one hand, baptism is merely symbolic and it's something you do after the fact. And on the other, it's something that kind of begins this, let's say, uh, regeneration process so that the act of baptism affects some kind of change. Those are kind of the two knowns. And then you come into the Reformed world and you see us baptizing uh, not only people who as adults come to faith and profess faith, but also the children of believers. And it's easy to assume that we're doing that for the same reason they do it in a Roman Catholic church or a Lutheran church. Uh, it looks like you're doing the same thing, so it must mean the same thing, right? So as a matter of fact, it doesn't. Because again, we're answering the question, what is baptism differently? 
So one person says baptism is to wash away original sin. Another person says, no, baptism is just a kind of a symbol you get to show that you have now become a believer, like a, a, a badge, you might think, that signifies the transformation that's taken place. We're articulating a third answer to the question of what is baptism and not, let's say, uh, infant baptism or believer's baptism, but covenant baptism. Covenant baptism. So when we baptize the newborn child of believers, we do it for the same reason that we baptize an adult who comes to faith and professes that faith. That's not two different kinds of baptism. It's the same. It's covenant baptism. And they receive the sign of baptism because we are recognizing them as members of the covenant community, the, the, the people who've received the promise that the signs go along with. In the case of the infants, we recognize it because they were born to the parents who were believers. Right? Paul says, even if just one of those parents is a believer, then the child is holy, is, is set apart. And so we acknowledge that by giving them the sign of that set-apartness. If a person comes to faith and professes their faith in Christ, by definition, we know that they are receivers of the covenant promise. And if they have not yet received the sign and seal of that promise, we give it to them as their birthright at that point. But the reason we do it is the same. And what it accomplishes is the same. In both cases, it is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. So baptism does not save a person. It is a sign of the promise of salvation, the promise of uh, washing and renewal that we have in the gospel. But the question of whether or not that individual will come to faith is still open in the case of an infant, right? Now, here, we also want to acknowledge another difference between the Reformed view and, and kind of the alternatives. You see this when you think about the Lord's Supper. So most people are familiar with the idea of transubstantiation, right, in, in the Roman Catholic practice of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. And then you know about the, the let's say, the, the Baptist view or the Zwinglian view. So you sometimes say that... that uh, sacrament is a mere memorial. Well, we say it's a means of grace, and that's more than a mere memorial, but, but it's not transubstantiation either. So with the Lord's Supper, the whole question was, is Christ present? And if so, in what way? And some very intelligent scholastic churchmen in the Middle Ages took the presence of Christ very seriously and they worked it out in an Aristotelian fashion. And leaning on Aristotle, they were able to differentiate between the, the appearance of a thing and the, the substantial properties that it possesses. And were able to figure out it's possible for a thing to, in its appearance or its accidents, to be unchanged and yet in its substance to be transformed so that the bread outwardly is bread, but in its substance has transformed into the body of Christ. 
something like that. And that's that would be the Catholic view. Yeah. So that's transubstantiation. There's there's a a Lutheran view. Consubstantiation. <laughs> Consubstantiation yeah. is is what it's often called. It's uh, it's. I'm not sure that's a term that that a Lutheran would use to describe oh, himself. So I, I think it is. I grew up but, Lutheran. I remember yeah. the, the phrase is it's the presence of Christ in, with, and under the elements. Yes. I think. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's that kind of it's a little more mysterious. I think it's 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 offering less of an explanation. It's not turning to Aristotle to to answer the question, right? So so you've got an Aristotelian explanation of the presence of Christ. You've got a a, a more mysterious but but physical explanation. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got, no, it's just symbolism. There is no presence of Christ uh, in this sacrament apart from, you know, the sense in which he's present everywhere, that sort of thing. So the reform view, again, is a kind of third way. So the reformers agree that, that Treating the sacrament as merely symbolic doesn't do justice to the way scripture describes these things. So they affirm the real presence of Christ. But what they don't do is come up with an explanatory theory to to kind of uh, make sense of that mystery. They just say, yes, he's really but spiritually present. And you think, okay, explain that to me. We're like, no, no. It can't be explained, really, but spiritually present. And if you are on one end of the spectrum, right, you you hear spiritual and think, oh, not real, not physical, which we would say, hold on a second. You know, spiritual is real. Spiritual doesn't mean the opposite of, of real, right? right? You know, it's possible even for Paul to speak of spiritual bodies, right, in the resurrection. So it's more complex than that, but it's it's much fuller than symbolism, right? than like mere memorial, that sort of thing. So again, a means of grace. But for us, these sacraments or these means of grace always operate when faith is present. So you don't receive an infusion of grace by having the sacraments done to you. If you receive the sacraments with faith, the Spirit works through them in particular mysterious ways, and they become a means of grace. So this started at, about baptism, but I have a, a question about uh, the Lord's Supper. Something I've wondered for a while, the, the real spiritual presence of Christ, would the, the Reformed view be that Christ's spiritual presence is really present in the elements? Is it contingent upon those elements being there, the, the bread and the wine? Or is, is he just here kind of in a general spiritual sense, albeit in a unique way? And that's kind of the other question. Is it a unique presence of Christ that's here in the elements that maybe wasn't a little bit ago, right? You know, when, when you were preaching. <laughs> right. No, it's, it's a great question, right? It's a great question. So it's, uh, it's, it's the, let's say, this, so this is the problem of explanations, right? So you could take that, let's say, consubstantiation view and say the body of Christ is, is sort of above and under and that sort of thing. And then you run into an Athanasian creed problem, right? Because you have to explain how it's possible now for Christ to be fully human because his flesh is part of his humanity, but now it's ubiquitous. 
and what human flesh is ubiquitous, you know, and so you've introduced a problem, right? So I think the reason why we speak in what may seem like vague or imprecise ways about the, the real spiritual presence is that we're not looking to quantify what we're talking about, you know, and, and we're not looking to locate or, or let's say limit Christ's presence in some way to say he's particularly here and not here or something like that. At the same time, I do think we want to talk about, let's say, an especial presence. So we're not just saying he's omnipresent. So of course he's present here just as he is everywhere else. Uh, it is particular to the sacrament received in faith that this happens. And the way that Calvin talks about it is interesting. So where we want to talk about uh, does Jesus's body come down and, and go into the bread or into the cup or that sort of thing? Calvin actually talks about us being caught up into the presence of God. And uh, this is kind of reflected in our liturgy. When we lift up our hearts to the Lord, this is that sense of lifting, of going up to be in his presence. So I think it is, it is good and acceptable to speak of the bread and to speak of the cup as the body and blood of Christ, as scripture does. And to do that without trying to sort of mince words or anything like that. At the same time, though, we need to picture ourselves as guests at a feast that the bridegroom is presiding over, right? That there's there's a lot of different ways in which we can see that, that presence happening. So if you think of that complexity and then you go back to baptism, there's a similar kind of complexity in baptism as well, because baptism signifies things. It's a sign and seal. So there is symbolism involved in what's going on, the symbolism of washing, the washing away of sin. And if we're talking about baptism as a means of grace, and again, we don't believe baptism is merely symbolic. So baptism doesn't bring about the regeneration of the person who's baptized, but the things that are promised in baptism really are offered in baptism as well. So let me read you from the Westminster Confession. This is uh, chapter 28 on baptism. At the very end of that chapter in section six, it talks about the efficacy of baptism. Now, when you hear those words, you know you're in different territory, right? We're not in Baptist world anymore because there's no efficacy tied to baptism. What does efficacy mean? Like effectiveness, like it doing some work. You know, baptism is mere symbolism the way I grew up. So now we're talking about efficacy. This is the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet notwithstanding by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. So again, we're, we're grouping together two kinds of baptism that people often think of as separate, which is uh, the baptism of those who are of age or adults or infants. And we're saying baptism is efficacious, like it works. It does something in both cases. It exhibits a grace, but it also confers a grace by the Spirit. But it does that to those who it belongs to, to those who receive in faith, and it does it, let's say, uh, out of sync with ordinary time. 
So it's not tied to the moments that it's administered. So we do believe there are benefits to baptism, but those benefits aren't necessarily received at the moment of baptism. They may manifest far in the future when a person comes to faith and they received baptism. What was promised in baptism is theirs by right. They come to faith and they receive it and they can look back on their baptism as having been that sign and seal of the promise that was made to them. So if you look in Calvin's Institutes in uh, book four, he talks about this. He says, from this sacrament, speaking of baptism, as from all others, we obtain only as much as we receive by faith. So he's specifically excluding the possibility that the sacraments just infuse grace into whoever gets them, right? It has to be received with faith. But if it's received with faith, whether that's the time of administration or at some point in the future as God ordains and, and, and plans, it is efficacious. Right. So again, you're seeing a little bit of that third way. And I think there's a lot of mystery in this. And, and we are not trying to pin all of it down. I think in both cases, the, the two sort of extremes that we've talked about, whether it's the sort of Aristotelian explanation or the pure symbolism explanation, I know this isn't usually how people think about it, but if you really think about it, these are both explanations, right? These are both ways of coming to grips with the mystery and essentially explaining it. And I get that what we're saying here may sometimes raise more questions than it answers, but this goes back to a theme we've talked about in the commentary before, mystery, right? There are things going on here in the means of grace that are spiritual, things that are beyond quantification, beyond uh, our ability to predict. As Jesus said in John chapter 3, the wind blows. You don't know where it's coming or where it's going, but you see its effects, and that's how the Spirit is. right? And so here we see that kind of spiritual action at work. Luther and Calvin obviously disagreed on baptism, but one thing they did agree on was this act the benefit of this act of looking back on your own baptism. And it's something I find really interesting too, that we get so caught up in the moment of the actual, you know, the actual act of baptism. And then we kind of forget about it oftentimes where uh, maybe one challenge for some of us, including myself would be to, well, you know, what, what role does baptism play in your life today? You know, what role does my, I was baptized as a child. Do I, do I ever look back on that and receive some of the promises by faith today? Well, I, sh I think I should, you know, if, if it is truly a sign and a seal of the, the promises, um, maybe I should be looking at it more, as Calvin has said, with faith and clinging to those promises. That highlights the connection between baptism in the New Testament and circumcision in the Old, right? So the New Testament sacrament is an analog, a continuation albeit a transformation of the Old Testament practice of circumcision. It, it works in a very similar kind of way. So circumcision marked you as a member of that covenant community. And it didn't mean that you were uh, a believer, right? We know there were circumcised people who were anything but faithful. At the same time, 
you were part of a community that had received a promise and, and received blessings and benefits. And if you turned your back on it, if you did not believe, if you apostatized, there were judgments, penalties that came along with that. Now, as a Baptist, again, believing in believer's baptism, whenever we ran into these apostasy warnings in the New Testament, it was really hard to understand what to do with them because we didn't have a category for someone who was part of a covenant community, but could fall away from it through lack of faith, because we believed once saved, always saved. Therefore, there was just no, that just didn't happen, right? If somebody fell away, it was because they never really believed, even if they seemed to and thought they did and that sort of thing. So this restores a way of understanding those apostasy warnings. It restores a way of understanding Paul's words about the holiness of the children of believers, that sort of thing. And it's in continuity with the practice of the Old Testament, right? So when we talked about unacknowledged assumptions, this is one that that needs to be acknowledged. When we come to the question of baptism, we have to confront the fact that although the practice of baptism is documented in the New Testament, it's instituted, there are commands to go out and do it. We, we see people being baptized, individuals, households, that sort of thing. There's not a lot of instruction on this. There's not a chapter you can turn to about the mode of baptism, how it's properly administered, that sort of thing. When should it be administered? How simple would it be if these things were all spelled out? And it's a little strange that in creating this, this new thing that was going to be so important that it would define denominations, that some effort wasn't made to pin down these important, uh, and some people will say essential, details. Well, what if they were, just not in the New Testament? That's where the covenantal view is really helpful, because where a thing is not explained as if it is unprecedented and new and no one has any experience, we ought to assume, well, maybe it's building on what went before. And maybe it would have been natural for people to understand this sign the way that the signs they'd grown up with functioned as well, and to make similar kinds of provisions and assumptions. So again, the covenantal view of baptism is like a key that unlocks a lot of stuff. It resolves a lot of incoherence that certainly I grew up with, questions I was always like, how does this stuff fit together? But it flows out of a larger understanding of just the covenantal work of God, the covenantal structure of scripture. And I think this is why it's often the last thing people come to understand. Certainly if you're coming the way I did into this, because it makes perfect sense when viewed through a redemptive historical lens, through kind of a lens of the story of Scripture and the covenantal structure of Scripture. But if you're coming at it through more of a, let's say like a proof texty sort of, if, if there's not a verse that says something explicitly, then it's not in the Bible. Um, it's a lot harder to see because you've got to build a context from scripture before you understand why these practices would have been done the way they were done. I've actually heard the argument. I think it was from Kevin DeYoung is where I read it. He said that it's, it's actually perhaps the silence of the new Testament on baptism in light of circumcision is a stronger argument for infant baptism for the continuity of that kind of a practice. Than it would be 
um, an argument against it. Um, because you would expect if this was if this was really changing with this new covenant, if if we were no longer going to include our children in in the covenantal family with a, a symbol, then somebody would speak up. It's the reason why when you get into these arguments for real, like you know, when you really start studying the views, <laughs> uh, you get almost immediately sort of shunted into a study of early church practice and kind of arguments over what they did in the early church. Ironically, right, for people who are saying, you know, we have no tradition but scripture, a lot of these arguments end up being arguments about different interpretations of what was done in, in the ancient church for that reason, because there's so little in the New Testament to base your polemics on, even though this is such a huge thing. And, and so I think to Young's point makes a lot of sense that that the silence is as strong an argument as you could wish for. Um, but having said that, because I came from, from the background that I came from and because at Grace, you know, we come from a lot of different backgrounds, it's understandable that we're all in different places and understanding how these things work. And it is always my hope that we can be a community where these kinds of differences, we can talk about them, we can think about them and be patient with one another, right? It's not necessary to understand or to agree with everything in order to be in communion with us. And I think that's, it's a benefit because it means this is a community where we can constantly be learning and growing. But the place I like to start is just explaining what we actually believe what we think baptism actually is. And in majority of times, it turns out you're not actually competing against another view because what people have grown up with, oftentimes that question was never answered. And, and people, when asked, have a difficult time articulating what baptism was for in the church where they grew up. And so, you know, it's, again, it's, it's a, uh, we treat a lot of things that people treat as life or death. We're, we're not so bent out of shape about the, the mode of administration. We don't worry that much about, um, you know, there's a variety of modes that we deem acceptable. Uh, we are not even insistent that you were baptized, you know, in a Presbyterian church, you know, as long as you were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by a properly ordained minister, uh, we accept that baptism and, and see that as, as a, a valid baptism. And so uh, for a lot of people coming into a PCA church, it can be a relief that, that uh, there's an, an openness, if not to, let's say, we don't hold a variety of views, but we are tolerance of a lot of conversation about our practice and, and really eager to explain it patiently rather than draw those harsh lines. Thank you, Cameron, and thank you to everyone who's listening to us. That's all the time we have this week for the commentary. Hope you'll join us next time. 
In the meantime, you can find out more about Grace Presbyterian Church by visiting us online at graceforsufalls.org.